Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right, guys, it's 3.30 on a Thursday afternoon. We're 30 minutes into the close. Guy is stuck in traffic. Dan is in Italy. I'm running solo, but I couldn't be happier to be with my boys here. So let's pretend we were sitting on our trading desk together, right? I know you're kind of positioning right now what you're thinking and how perverse this market and this world is when you're rooting, Porter, you just said, for people to be unemployed. So we have a job print in the morning, and we know how people are obsessing on every economic data point. So Porter Vinny, talk to me right now. What are you doing into the bell or what would you be saying into the bell here? Well, just to be clear, I'm not rooting for people to lose their jobs, but the market and people that are long technology stocks specifically are hoping for people to lose their jobs tomorrow. And that's just how perverse things are. And it makes me so angry. And our shorts have been squeezing on us for a better part of a month. Actually, the bottom of the market was our last call. So all the people that want to own the technology companies, the technology companies, the ones that are announcing the layoffs... The virtuous cycle in their mind is keep announcing layoffs. Let's get some bad economic data points to juice your stock higher, even though you're telling us that things are slowing because as a result, you're firing people, just to be clear. What's so wrong with that, Danny? You know, it's a world we're living in, Vin. I remember when we were last on, and I remember a story, maybe I didn't tell, but I'll tell it now. Way back when, when Porter and I were in the working at a hedge fund that shall be nameless, it was October 2018, and... We were having for what in that crazy construct was a good year. And we go into our boss's office and they go, hey guys, how's it going? And we all give each other fake high fives. They're like, what are you doing? What, what, what do you guys want to do? We want to give you more capital. Like, like we want to give you more resources. And we're like, you know what we want to do? We want to take the portfolio completely down, crawl up in a ball, go home and watch the prices right. Because the next three months, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I want to call it a day and go home. And you can imagine what their answer was, Danny, when when we told them what we wanted to do. Lift and lever? Lift and lever. That's exactly what they wanted us to do. And it's kind of the way I feel pretty much right now. You've had this massive squeeze in names 
And I just still think the next two, three months are going to be very difficult to call the direction. Long or short, like, can the squeeze continue? Yeah, we could have a bad employment print and people will take it as if it means something more than it should. We could start to march down because technically we're at difficult resistance levels. So very difficult. And I will say this is I completely agree with Rosie is that we're sort of the end of the tightening cycle anyway. Listen, I I was wrong. I said that the Fed will never get to 2% and they haven't started QT yet. And they're towards the end of where they're going to hike to anyway. And I just don't think that the economy can handle that much higher rates. And so I'm in this weird situation where I think the Fed's sort of done. And listen, the market already assumes that the Fed's done, pivot or not pivot or whatever you want to call it. The market basically said they pivoted. And I think we're 50 bips and done anyway. And so I think the next step is the earnings are going down, right? And Vinny and I had this back and forth with your buddy Chanos about how a lot of these stocks are down, but the multiple hasn't moved, right? Because the earnings have started to get killed. I think they continue to get killed. So let's talk about some of those earnings that you guys have seen, kind of a recap, takeaways, you know, let's say, because we're about more than halfway through, obviously, the earnings at this point. We had a bunch in the last few days that have come out. What are your guys' number one takeaways in general, other than earnings going down in some cases? What's your takeaway? For the most part, the best earnings, not surprisingly, have been in the energy sector. No one's surprised that that is the case. And the stocks are acting as if no one was surprised. They're thinking more forward. It seems like the big tech names were surprisingly slightly better than expected. And as a result, the combination of slightly better than expected and a drop in the 10-year treasury and increasing the duration trade has helped that trade out massively. On the bank side, pretty much in line with expectations. There's good loan growth. Uh, There was good net interest margin expansion, but you're starting to see a bit of a provision build. Nothing, nothing terrible, but a bit of a provision build. No, I just think it's more the latter. I I think it's, it's like, oh, great. The 10 year dropped. Therefore Amazon guided down, but it's there. The sales are okay-ish and they completely dismissed your favorite stock, Walmart. And you're seeing a lot of I think bad earnings all over the place. Yes, expectations were lowered in places, but I think you're, aside from these energy stocks, the overall trend of the earnings is lower. And so I don't think they're great. I don't want to buy a lot of this stuff that's going up right now. Vinny and I are not good at chase. We're, we're fundamental momentum people, right? And so we we follow fundamental trends. And so I don't like buying a stock because oh, it's not getting any worse anymore. So it just doesn't make any sense to me. It just feels like, to me, you can have earnings, good companies. Yeah, they guided to a level, then they beat it or made it, made the number, that's fine. But on the granular basis, if you want a real look into the economy, you're going to find it in things like Walmart. You're going to find it in things like the banks that are reserving now for what they believe is going to be credit losses that are coming. Credit Acceptance Corp., which I do not have have a position, I do not know if you guys have a position, they took a pretty large provision for the first time in a long time. They're, for those people out there, they finance used cars mostly, and mostly those people you will find in kind of the subprime scale of things from a FICO perspective. And credit has been great for them for a very long time. But now with rates moving higher and funding costs going up at the same time that we've seen a kind of a peak in the consumer, start to look at companies like that that are going to tell you really what's happening. So that name to me is a microcosm of kind of what's out there. And I'll add this to it and I want to get your thoughts. So Lizanne Saunders tweeted out the other day what the savings rate is. And I had no idea 
we're back to the savings rate of August 2009 for people. And that tells me how fragile things truly are, right? So you're going you're gonna to drop to that level? Well, we were on our way to recovery in August 2009. We had so many government programs in place to kind of get things going again and put money in people's pockets, let them borrow very cheaply. Rates are, now rates are going back up. The very least, funding costs are going up. You can tell me what the 10-year is going to do, but cost of doing business is up, cost for the consumer is going up. And even if oil drops another 10 bucks, it's not enough to offset where I think rates are. So I want to kind of get your thoughts on the consumer in general, because it has a huge impact. This, this economy is all about the consumer. So I was looking at a stock Cheesecake Factory, pretty good barometer of middle America restaurant trends. People were expecting them to make 80 cents. About four days before the quarter, the IR calls around Wall Street and the, and the estimates go to like 50 cents. And, and of course, they miss the estimate. And because the 10 years down, you know, stocks 20% higher a couple of days later. So it's one of these things where did it matter, even matter what they printed? That's the sort of the oddity of, of the stock market. And you forget that, that macro drives so much more than micro sometimes. But the overall case in terms of micro is that the consumer is stretched. And I think you see it everywhere. And you know, you definitely see it with Wayfair, I, I believe, reported this morning. It's a terrible quarter. You see a lot of these companies where sales are, are down or sales are going down and, and it's just not the right trend right now. And listen, I'll do my two cents of weighing into recession. We're two quarters in and you probably see a third quarter this quarter. So we're in sort of what I would call a recession and it's not picking up anytime soon. Things are worsening, not getting better. The only thing I would add to it, Danny, is that I would use the word bifurcation and dispersion. Let me give you two financial companies, both had very different earnings prints. One was American Express. So let's take the high end, right? They were actually raising revenue projections. The bill business was better, mainly because Richie Rich is spending and travel, which is what they are better at than most, was really heavy. So that was American Express, and the stock acted really well after the print. Then we have another name called One Main Financial, which is a very small name. Most people won't know it, but just think of it as indicative of the subprime consumer. And Danny, you'll love this one. In the press release, they used to disclose the delinquencies by the buckets, 30 to 60, 60 to 90, 90 plus. This quarter, they failed to disclose the early stage buckets. Now, we used to have a thing when we were at Seawolf. If you're going to be omitting any disclosures, you know it's probably a short and it's probably a bad thing. Lo and behold, the numbers came out in the 10Q and the early stage delinquencies roofed. And that is so indicative of to the subprime consumer. So using those two and making somewhat a drawing some form of a conclusion, the lower end consumer is really hurting, but the high end consumer for now is fine. The takeaway from that, though, to Porter's point before Cheesecake Factory, it'll trade a certain way for a couple of days. And if you're long that thing and you know you're on borrowed time, just sell it. You don't have to go short the stock, but you know it has very little upside, right? I don't think Cheesecake is taking off. At, but guess who just walked in, speaking of Cheesecake? I am here. I apologize, fellas. First of all, first and foremost, for the last month and a half, two, well, all season, but specifically over the last couple of months, your Mets are on fire. And I've said this, and I'll say it here on this podcast. I am terrified as a lifelong Yankee fan of playing the Mets in the World Series. The thought of that makes me break out in hives. And that is the highest compliment I can give the New York Mets, fellas. A week ago, you said, you quote, 
All that matters is October, so good luck. So in a week, you're that impressed. I think it's more the Yankees losing a series at home to Seattle, that type of thing. Yeah, well, look, the Yankees have been struggling. They've been floundering now for the last month and a half. No, but there's something about this Met team. They're very methodical in the way they do things. Obviously, DeGrom is back. Scherzer seems to be on a mission, and Diaz is the best closer in the league right now, and that all scares me. They added a bat, although not the bat they probably wanted. Nimmo's having a great year that nobody talks about, and Alonzo's just doing it all. So good for the Mets right now, and I, I'm saying this sincerely. I'm terrified. The thought of playing them in the World Series terrifies me. The thought of the Padres scares the crap out of me. I mean, this is ridiculous how good they are right now. Well, the team they just put together, I mean, they're clearly going for it and good for them. And I think their fans deserve it without question. But listen, the Padres are not in first place, as you guys know. They still got to get through a wild card game and anything's possible there. The Dodgers, obviously, I think, are the team the Mets probably are most concerned with. Although this five game series with the Braves is going to be interesting. But people are not here to hear us talk about Major League Baseball. They want to hear what you guys have to say. And I'm sorry I walked in late, but talking about subprime and what I've said for a while, and despite the fact that the S&P 500's rallied some almost 600 points off that June 16th low, credit is still a concern out there, and it's manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. Now, the market's not taking it into consideration, Vinny, but my thoughts are, should it start to look at it? The HYG has bounced from 73 Closing in on 80, that's obviously the one thing that I look at. But I'm hearing anecdotal stories from insurance companies, from different things where people are starting to be delinquent in their payments. And that's sort of the next shoe for me, Vinny. It is. And what we're seeing is all of the leading indicators that are out there are trending down. And as a result of that, it's only natural to expect that the next thing that's going to happen is that earnings are, are going to go south. We started to see it this quarter, right? I think it's going to be more magnified in the third quarter. The question we should all ask ourselves is, is at what point does the Fed recognize this and accelerate their dovishness? And my answer to that, at least at this point in time, is they can't. So I think right now we're kind of still remain a little bit trapped in terms of what we can do, which is very, makes markets very difficult. There are a couple of things going on here. I think the market's rallying for a few different reasons. I think the first reason is they interpreted that Fed meeting as dovish. I didn't, but that doesn't matter. The second part is we're not going to hear from these people again until the end of September. Obviously, Jackson Hole notwithstanding, number two. And number three, people say, wait a second, the data's coming in weak. Commodities are getting crushed. This Fed can pivot. The market's doing its job for them. And I think that's what the S&P 500 is taking its cues from. I'll say this. I think if the, if the market thinks this Fed is going to pivot, I think they're sorely mistaken. And if the Fed does pivot, my goodness gracious, yeah, you might get an equity rally, but the commodity rally you see on the back end of that is going to be threefold of what we see in equities. We always use the uh, Simon and Garfunkel phrase, uh, man, here's what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, right? And I think they know that the end is near in terms of how high the Fed can go. They just can't go to 5%. The economy will shut down. So, you know, good for them for putting 275s back to back and we're now here at two and a half. I just don't think they can go much more. And so I'll give the bulls that in the fact that the Fed's probably closer to being done. I'd like to see them try some QT, but that's obviously not happening. But I think the people who are giddy about stocks here, they see a cut and QE in the future. I just don't see that. That's the difference. I I just think it's going to be a more 
prolonged thing. And I don't see them fixing what I think the problem is, as we talked about in our first half letter, is that the supply side of energy and a lot of the supply problems out there, they're just not fixing. They're crushing demand, but they're not fixing supply. And so that's my biggest problem with what's going on right now. Nothing's at the core of it's being fixed besides a shittier economy, which is not great, right? So people hoping for job losses tomorrow. That's not a great way to run our economy. I would love nothing more than to be bullish. It, it's such a horrible way to go through life to try to be cynical, okay? Play bullish. So if I were to go away for two or three weeks and come back and see the market down 500 points on the S&P, let's say from where, let's let's call it 33, 3,400. Forget this last 200-point rally or something. I'd say, well, that makes sense because the economy is obviously slowing, the Fed still going, whatever. I can't think of what would make this market move higher from here. Could it go another 100 points on the S&P? Sure. It can go another 200 points, but it's not sustainable. And the reason it's not sustainable is we just went through this. We are in the early stages of a credit cycle. The Fed raising rates have a lag effect on what's going on. Wells Fargo just put out a kind of a credit card overview of what they see and go on. They are telling you what consumers are doing, where they're pulling back, where they're spending money, what's happening. So to me, I don't need to know anything more than that. People can trade expectations on a quarter here and there. They can watch the tenure. But at the end of the day, cards speak. At the end of the day, fundamentals will matter. And Vinny just brought up a point on one main where you got to go read the 10Q to see. So someone walks in, stock's been up 5% a day, 5% a day. All of a sudden, it's up 20% over four days. Earnings had already been reported. 10Q comes out, which is, for people who don't know, is filed quarterly, much deeper dive. And the stock's down 35% from where. I'm just making, I don't know where that is. My point is that that's a lot of damage that can occur People that aren't paying attention are just kind of going with the flow. So this is a market you want to be cynical in. You want to question everything that's kind of out there. So it goes back to kind of stock pickers market. And you got to be careful, obviously, on these squeezes. And right when you think you got them by the jugular, they'll squeeze you right out of the thing. So that's a behavioral finance aspect. So how are you guys managing right now? We talked about short squeezes a little while ago. How are you managing through the right now? Are you using options? I know Vinny hates those. Are you taking down positions, waiting to add? What are you doing? One thing I would like to add about one of the reasons why the market's going up that we sort of touched upon, but it's really probably more powerful than we would all like to admit. And all of us are sadly older than we would like to be. So we've seen this before many a times and many a cycles, which is something, as the Jets fans know all too well, which is being offsides, right? Wait for the flag, you mean? When you score a touchdown, you just wait for the flag? Oh, yeah. So, Guy, you probably don't feel this as much as a Giants fan, but whenever the Jets get like a 70-yard run, a true Jets fan will never jump up and down for joy. They will look to the lower left part of the screen and look to see the red flag coming out because it's usually a holding or an offsides of some sort. So the entire hedge fund industry, and arguably rightfully so from a fundamental perspective, was offsides for whatever you want to call it, a Fed pivot, a Fed downshift and the like. And they found themselves short all the same names at a time when the Fed did something that was different than what was happening two weeks ago. And so as a result, the last part of July and early August, all you're doing is having risk managers at large hedge funds tap the analysts and PMs on the shoulders and degross and cover and degross and cover. All of our conversations over the last week, the word we use is pain. There's pain all over the place. So. I'm always worried to say when this will end, but we're probably a lot closer to the end than we were to the beginning, just based upon technicals and resistance levels that are coming up. But that is a big, big driver of what's happening right now. 
No question about it. And I agree with that. And listen, my sense is as oversold or as over negative as people were in the middle of June, which they were, which we addressed, by the way. And that's why I think to a large extent you've seen this move. I think that's where people find themselves on the flip side of that coin now. And and again, I don't like being negative. I don't. What I will say, I say all the time, I grew up in a Wall Street where I was taught what can go wrong will go wrong. And hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So I'm predisposed to think this way. But even with that, I look across the landscape, I see what's going on, and I say, this can't end particularly well. And quickly, not to play stock market here, but the Microsoft quarter, when that stock, when that company reported, the stock was trading 254 thereabouts on the close. They reported a quarter, slowdown in cloud, 40%, the street was at 45%. The knee-jerk reaction, again, knee-jerk reaction was to take that stock down to 242. What got the stock back on its horse was the fact that in the conference call, they said they were not seeing a slowdown in demand, which may be true. I don't know if that's good or bad because that is coming to a theater near you. So these quarters weren't great. They were good enough. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the momentum to the upside. But by no stretch of the imagination, with these quarters where stocks should be up 25 30%. Apple, for example, Danny, you saw 2% year-over-year revenue growth in Apple, which we haven't seen maybe ever, but in quite some time. I was going to say, and this is a name that Porter and Vinny can opine on for sure, so PayPal to me is the microcosm. Here's why. Good company, never was going out of business. There was no threat of it ever, you know, not one of these meme stocks, whatever. Got down under 70 bucks a share. Got to a market cap over, you know, around $70 billion or somewhere in that area, right? What happened? Earnings were fine, and you had an activist come in. It's a little bit of tech. It's a little bit of consumer. You know what it is also that we talked about at the top of the show is that people can own quality, and they can hide in quality, right? So you'll pay a premium for certainty right now. So people like, I was going to buy PayPal. I knew it. I was, you know, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, waiting for it to pull back. When Porter is talking about, when he's talking about max pain in the market, it's those type things to me that as a fundamental analyst are like, you get caught up too much in the macro, and this would be me. This would be what I would do if the three of us were sitting on a desk still. Don't buy PayPal yet. Let's wait. It's going Because the macro is going to be bad. This is what we're talking about, guys. So use PayPal kind of as an example, because to me, it's the perfect example of exactly what's going on in this market. This is an ode to Dan Nathan, because I know he would be, want us to talk something optimistic and bullish. PayPal was a miss on our part, to be honest. And Danny, you nailed it exactly, the emotions that probably we were feeling and we saw the downside in the name. And if you have actually looked at the valuations, it was palatable. But clearly, Elliot saw something in it. And that's the part I want to get to. Elliot saw something in this, and Elliot saw something in pins. And so if someone like Elliot is seeing opportunities and it took large stakes in both names that happened to come out when they both reported. And if Elliot's seeing something like that, you know what? There are opportunities in the market. There aren't tremendous frequent opportunities, but there are some opportunities in the market. And you're right, Danny, on something like that, we have to have our eyes out to make sure that we don't get too greedy or valuation becomes too big of an issue for us for opportunities where we should start sprinkling in and buying something. Danny always mentioned when there's still insanity in the market, it's hard to say we've reached bottom. And something's happened over the last couple of weeks, this HKD, which IPO'd, I believe, at $7.80 a couple of weeks ago. If I'm mistaken, please don't at me on Twitter. I think the opening price had a 14 handle or thereabouts. The stock traded, I believe, 
$1,900 at its zenith. Danny's giving me the thumbs up higher Higher, Bob. That. Higher. We talked about prices right earlier, so that's perfect. Higher. $2,500, $2,500. So my sense is at $2,500, that was probably a $400 billion company, which would have made it, which made it at the time, one of the largest companies on the planet. It's madness what's going on. Now, obviously, it's pulled back. It's still at ridiculous levels. $156 billion. My point is not to trade that stock, but the insanity around it is what I want to point out. So when things like that can still go on, I think the mechanism, Danny, of the market is still broken. Yeah, for sure. I, like, I, I thought we were close. We were getting there. We, we were getting there in June. We're starting to feel that way. Let's get the washouts coming. Here it is. Here it is. Pivot. Is it a pivot? Whatever. We'll see tomorrow. But it's a pivot. And then you're back to this again. And who's going to get hurt the most? You think institutions are buying these stocks? No. It's the meme crowd. It's the retail. And they're going to get hurt. And that, honestly, upsets me as much as being wrong about where this market has gone. And I do think we're in for a dicey August border. Listen, you can still see how much money is sloshing around the system. And people need to put money to work. Elliot's a perfect example of that. They need to put money to work. And let's talk a bit about Tiger Global and Co2. Those guys publicly took their long positioning way, way down, short a ton of stocks. And the short interest on a lot of these tech names looked around, it was 20, 30% of the floats. It's just sometimes there's so much money sloshing around and there's not that many stocks. It goes to a lot of weird places. And so some of these short squeezes, it's just a further example of so much money sloshing around the system. And so I just think this is going to keep taking a long time to shake out. Uh, as evidenced by the speculation going on. No, I agree. And listen, one of the things that I've noticed on my end is, let's play it out here a little bit. And I don't want to get bogged down in Bitcoin. That's not what I'm here to do. But it's not coincidental. We've mentioned it here that Bitcoin topped out around 68,000 or thereabouts at precisely the same time this Federal Reserve correctly pivoted in November. I don't think that's coincidental. But what I think is interesting, obviously, Bitcoin has bounced a little bit. I think they're taking their cues from potentially a Federal Reserve that's going to pivot or pause, whatever word you want to use. But I got to tell you something. There's something, and again, I know I'm a gold bug. I totally get it. I grew up on it. But over the last week, week and a half, Danny, something is happening in gold. And my sense is the following. Either the Fed's going to lose control of the situation, which is bullish for gold, or they will do a pivot or a pause or whatever, which is bullish for gold. I think the cards have aligned where gold might actually be really interesting here, Danny Moses. Yeah, and Dan's away. Maybe that's why gold went up so much. And he gave me a lot of heat like a month ago, and I was getting destroyed on Twitter. Oh, good call, gold, yeah, whatever. My point was, I'm just going to own it. I don't care. At some point, it's going to make its move. And hopefully, this is the move potential. Look at these miners. I mean, you look at some of these things. And when oil goes down, by the way, and gold goes up, the miners win-win. Because correct me if I'm wrong, boys, but you know, one of the biggest input for these miners is energy in order to get that gold out of the ground, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So that's kind of a win-win there. So what are your guys' thoughts on gold? You know how I feel here. We mentioned it on the, uh, on the tape episode last time we were here. It was one of the few things we were buying. It's obviously done pretty well since then, but underperformed the broad market. But let's take the turn in, in Bitcoin. We're, we were just talking about micro strategies. And Bitcoin bounced off the bottom from 19,000 to 22,000. Micro strategies doubled on that. And that, that's just because the, the, you know, the short interest was 30% in the stock. And it was the shorts that took it up. The value of their Bitcoin and their balance sheet is $66 a share. The stock's 300 so I just think there's speculation all over the place. And, and I think 
As far as gold, I think it continues to go higher and it's sniffing out, finally sniffing out the Fed's pivot. And like I said earlier, the Fed's pretty close to being done anyway. Call what you want. The Fed's already pivoting and the stock market and the gold market has figured that out. So Porter, on this micro strategy, tell me if I'm wrong, but this is exactly what happens in a hedge fund. An analyst comes to the portfolio manager and says, I figured out the code. I'm going to go long Bitcoin and short micro strategy because I figured out that Bitcoin has to get back to 30,000 before micro strategy can afford to get to 300. So we're going to put this trade on. I've done the modeling. I've looked at it out. I've extrapolated it out. Next day, Bitcoin goes up 1,000 and micro strategies goes up 30%. The portfolio manager says, By the way, I took off that trade and you're fired. This is exactly the kind of shit that is going on where people try to overanalyze and figure out actually to do fundamental work in this in this market. Right. That was very Eric Cartman from uh, South Park. (laughs) Eric Cartman? Danny, to be honest, let's play this out at Seawolf because this is exactly what would happen. So I would come with my spreadsheet all squeaky clean right to you guys and show you the spreadsheet and probably tell you to do exactly what you just did in that Cartman voice. You would want to tear it up and use it as toilet paper, right? And say, Vinny, that's great. You're right. You're right. Why don't we just short micro strategies? And Porter would turn around and say, that's exactly what we should do. So at the end of the day, all we would do is be short micro strategies and forget about that whole convoluted trade. That's what would the Seawolf way of doing things. Exactly. All right. I just wanted to round that out, boys. Thank you. No problem. Vinny, should I put my tinfoil away or is it about time to put that hat on? In terms of what, guy? Gold. In terms of gold, man. I know all these cats out there with the tinfoil and I want to hear from you because you can synthesize this shit better than I can. I think I've said this before. I think gold and I guess to a lesser extent Bitcoin, but Bitcoin, I think, is dealing with a bunch of leverage issues associated with crypto world. But I think gold is the report card for central banks. I've said that before. I'll say it again. And right now, central banks were getting an A for what they were doing. And I think we all know at the end of the day, they're going to fail. They kind of have to fail at the end of the day. So I'm with you. And by the way, central banks have been buying gold. So it's been one of the few things that we've actually increased our exposures to on the long side. It was painful doing it, but as it kept going down, but we were kind of adamant that it's hard for us to see the Federal Reserve staying in a tightening bias over the next six months. Central banks bought 60 tons of gold last month as the price of gold was collapsing. Let me just say, speaking of gold, Goldman Sachs, I want to bring this up for a reason. So I know there's some prop trading and stuff that's been going on various places. And you saw in the quarter that Goldman reported how much, how well they did kind of in their trading. Well, I noticed near and dear to, to our hearts that there was two traders that were let go because they were threatening to leave. I looked at where they worked. They were in this index trading group, brilliant guys, I'm sure, that wrote code. And Goldman was accusing them because they were going to leave and go to a hedge fund that they were taking code again. This reminds me, and we all know when Michael Lewis found the coder, ended up writing Flash Boys was a starting point for how he kind of got to it. I think that that group made $700 million. I mean, so the stuff is still going on. But it made me think when I saw an article this morning, and listen, I'm a capitalist. I'm obviously a pro Wall Street guy. You guys know how we feel about certain prop trading groups in Wall Street and certain people that get free rides on bank depositors and stuff like that. So I have mixed emotions, but I'm a capitalist. I'm a fan. But here we are. I saw an article crying about bonuses are going to be down. I started to think to myself, I'm like, this has been a Fed-induced Wall Street rally for years. If anyone's bitching and moaning right now about going to be down 10 20 30% or whatever, they should thank their lucky stars that they have this seat. And so when I saw that article, it made me think about 
all the stuff that's still going on behind the scenes. And when you talk about trading gold or trading anything, you know, I think these banks are still, some of them are very active. We've seen some things happen, obviously nickel, you know, JP Morgan a while back, but I think they're much more involved now than I would have thought, Guy. When people have to decide whether or not, and this is coming to a theater near you as well, people in Europe are going to have to decide whether they're going to feed their family or heat their homes, number one. And to a certain extent, we're seeing some of the similar things here. When those are decisions you have to make, and on the flip side of that coin, you have people pissing and moaning because they're not going to get the bonuses they think they deserve, that's a problem. That's the chasm. And that, my friends, in my opinion, was created by these reckless policies of the Federal Reserve. So when you ask me why I get so exercised about this shit, that's why. Because the wealthy have never been wealthier, and the poor, quite frankly, have never been more poor. And for 35 million people in this country, for almost 10% of our fellow citizens, this is 19, late 1920s, early 1930s shit, and it ain't getting better for them. People finally have the ability to put money in the bank and earn a return, and savings are at the lowest they've been in 13 years. Yeah. That pretty much sums it up, boys, right? So tell us, give us your thoughts there. I'll start. It's one of the things I've been really going bonkers on. And it's a bit wonky, but I'll try to make it simple. Is that if, if you look at bank world, it's controlled by the regulators and, and they put risk weights on every single type of asset. So whatever asset is on a bank, they have to hold a certain amount of capital. You wouldn't be surprised that the risk weights for everything capital markets and treasuries have the lowest risk weights and all things loans have the highest risk weight. So everything that you just said to me, Danny, doesn't surprise me at all. Wall Street and the banks are being pushed by their regulators to be in securities and capital markets versus making loans out to the communities. So all of it is like, well, what do you expect? And the people who run Wall Street banks tend to come from the security side of the business, and Porter can speak to this because he's near and dear to his heart, versus the banking side of the business. So everything that is happening, when you think about it from that perspective, what the fuck do you expect? Of course, that's going to be the case. And real quick, Porter, I don't think it's coincidence that as we sit here, having seen a significant rally over the last month and a half or so, names like JP Morgan are not trading well. I think the 52-week low in JP Morgan was 106, if I'm not mistaken, that stock now trading either side of 115. This, by the way, on a tape where Goldman Sachs and the same tape has gone from 275 to 330, 340 or so. So something's going on with the banks that nobody is choosing to acknowledge or bring up right now. And I think that's going to be problematic. That sort of makes complete sense to me because, first of all, the, the banks need rate hikes. And if you're talking about Wall Street bonuses, they're, they're going to be down rightfully so, because activities weigh down. And IPOs and high-yield issuance and all this stuff is at, is at 2008 levels. And it's just, there's not much activity going on. And going back to VIN's risk weights and making loans, back to my whole point earlier that I was making is that we're not doing the right type of investment. If the world wants to grow, it needs to invest, and it needs to invest in energy. We're not doing enough of that. That's the frustrating part to me is that Wall Street banks are still vilifying the energy complex ESG. You know, we were talking with an energy company the other day is that, is it, well, the, the banks won't lend to us. And so that still goes on. And that's the reason we're in all these issues. We're not fixing the root problem here. And so that, that's just frustrating to me. I love having you guys on because you're clear thinkers. You're able to synthesize, you're able to present 
and you look past the bullshit and you're not just sort of grin, everything's okay. And before we get out of here, I want to say one thing. On Twitter, a lot of times people say, oh, you're always negative, you're un-American, you're always bringing up the negative. I think it being patriotic is pointing out things that are problematic and trying to show people some of the things that go wrong. It's easy to go on TV every night and just be happy and grin, everything's okay, buy the dip, all that bullshit. I'm selling calls on the way up and I'm buying on the dip because there's no repercussions for that type of nonsense. In reality, I think the people that do the best service to the audience are the ones that point out things that nobody's thinking about. And Vinny and Porter, that's both of you guys. Danny, that's you as well. Yeah, well, listen, here's to rooting if you're bullish for a horrible economy so you can make a little bit more money and get the S&P to 4,300 and we'll see what happens. And, you know, I could see both sides of it. If it's a better jobs training, like, see, there's no slowdown and the Fed's already raised all these rates. So people will take away from tomorrow's number, whatever they want it to be, but we'll see. And guys, we will have you guys back on obviously very soon. I think we're going to be talking about what happened after the last time that you came on, which is today. So thank you guys for coming on the tape. No problem. And listen, I'll apologize to the audience members if we're not as geeked up as we used to be, but we, we've spent the better part of this past month getting squeezed in a lot of our shorts. And so... Uh, Vinny got squeezed with COVID too at the same time. So I appreciate you guys even doing it. So. By the way, if, if this makes it to the audience, breaking news, one of my favorite things when being in Seawolf was about four o'clock and earnings would come out. Danny would have on his Bloomberg machine, NI earnings, or actually I think Danny would do NI warnings. And it was just entertainment beyond entertainment for 45 minutes as everything hit the tape. And in terms of even names that were in, not in, it was just, it was just pure insanity of things just hitting the tape. And it, it just happened right now as I'm looking at it and I'm just stocked that we've been involved in beyond me just missed. And I'm just bringing back of where would Danny be running around the office on a miss like this? It would be fantastic to watch. Name of the podcast on the tape. Don't you think it came from? Maybe I'll change it to NI Warren. Thanks so much for coming on. When we come back, we'll have Emily Paxia from Beside Investment Management and Brady Cobb, who is in the weeds, so to speak, in the cannabis industry. like what you did there. Thank you. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
Welcome back to On the Tape. We are very lucky to have two of the most influential people and most experienced people in the cannabis sector, Emily Paxia from Poseidon Investment Management, which she founded in 2013 with her brother Morgan. They're currently involved in several different things. They have three private funds, seven different syndicates. They have an ETF, PSDN. Emily has been involved in not just business causes, but many social causes as well, which we will get into. Brady Cobb, who has been a guest on this podcast a few times, needs no introduction, obviously, to the people that have listened to him before. But his background, obviously, as a lawyer and a lobbyist, really activist, turned into an operator side of the business within cannabis, still very active in both. We'll talk about what he's already accomplished and what may be ahead for him in his career here. So I want to welcome you both to On the Tape. Thank you for having me, Emily. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for having us. It's fun to be with this group. So first things first, which I kind of discovered, I knew more about Brady's background and his father and kind of when he became really passionate about the flower and its uses. Emily, I was unaware. Both your parents, sounds like, had gone through various bouts of sickness and have used cannabis and you saw it firsthand, kind of relief that it can bring them. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe I'll start with you. That was kind of when you first realized that this plant had medical benefits to it and you took off from there. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was kind of an early seed that was planted, so to speak, that then evolved into getting into the industry multiple years later. Because yeah, with our dad being sick, it was introduced as a idea. I mean, he had been a long and uh, happy consumer of cannabis. You know, he's in the Woodstock movie, he's all around. But when it came to him being very, very terminally ill, it came up as a palliative care kind of end of life suggestion from a hospice nurse. And being raised in the Nancy Reagan war on drugs, DARE programs, this was something that stood out very clearly in my mind and my family. And we've all discussed this as we've gone forward. And so when we put together our firm, it was very much a conviction-based investment thesis that we felt like capital is a change agent. If we invested in this industry, it could expand and grow, and then more people could benefit from it. Amazing. And around that same time that you started your firm, I believe, Brady, you started your own law firm down in Florida, obviously, and you were also inspired, unfortunately, by your father as well. Maybe just tell that story again to the listeners that haven't heard it. Yeah. So for me, it was very similar to Emily. I call us early prospectors in the cannabis industry. We are also, I would say, gluttons for punishment. But I have been a fan of the plant for far too long. Obviously, big believer in it, user of it, but also for me, it meant something more than just something you roll up and smoke. My father, you know, was a 1977 and 1983. He was one of the biggest importers of cannabis, as I like to say, illegal imports, ultimately went to prison. And I finally get to reconnect with him in right around 2007, 2008 in a real way. And then he terminal bone cancer in the latter part of 2009. So he passed away in 2010. I had just made partner at a big law firm, youngest guy to ever make partner there excited, euphoric, and then that happens. And it's like, all right, get busy living or get busy dying. And it was, again, a conviction-based move for me. I think it's a great way of saying it, Emily. And it was time to jump into the space. It was time to jump in headlong, both in the regulatory and legislative side, but ultimately began working in the early Canadian days, began working in the Western states, and then ultimately worked really hard to make sure that we got a constitutional amendment passed here in Florida in uh, 2016. So that was kind of what made me jump headfirst into the space and kind of have tentacles both into the reform efforts as well as trying to be one of the few voices in the space that doesn't treat this as a true commodity, but also caring about the authenticity of the plant and the authenticity of the purpose that you operate. It's not just about biomass and volume and earnings reports. 
So I pride myself on being a little bit different in that regard. Right. So perfect segue. You just quoted Shawshank Redemption, get busy living, get busy dying. This whole sector has to do with prison, right? It has to do with getting people out that shouldn't be there. And I also feel like as an investor, you've been in prison for some time. So Emily, I'm going to shift back to you. We'll get back to Brady on the operating side in a minute, but just on the investment management stuff that you've seen over the last, call it nine years now that you've been doing this, you've seen a lot of iterations, fits and starts. You've had successes. I'm sure there's been some things that haven't worked out when you deal in a sector like this, you learn from them. Talk about kind of where we are right now, what you see happening and what you learned along the way that got you here. The way the world has shifted around cannabis since when we first dollars into the legal industry with external capital was January 2014 when Colorado opened their adult use market. So the way we think about cannabis is it is an emerging market and you see these kind of condensed hype cycles that occur. And some of the first cycles included Canada legalized on a federal medical level. And you saw some of the big operators up there and we were investors early in private rounds before those companies went public. And now they're some of the names that are listed on the exchanges. But then we saw that arcing up and felt like there was a disconnect of the metric that was being used there, which was funded capacity versus the actual demand or capability for the population to consume the amount of cannabis being produced there. And we cycled capital at that point into the US. And we were really fortunate to have spent a lot of time building up our network. And we were able to participate then in private rounds in what are known as the multi-state operators or MSOs. So we've gone through that. And then there was this really interesting arc that occurred again after Jeff Sessions came out and rescinded our coal memo, which was basically a memo outlining how this industry may be able to create infrastructure or KYC AML around banking. And it felt like things were shifting. And so then all of a sudden, a lot of companies went public in Canada via the RTO process or even potentially an IPO process up there. And things we saw arc up again, we went through that cycle. We just really have stayed focused on investing in teams, in fundamentals, and in thinking about where this market is going. And for that, we have avoided a lot of the high up. Well, the high ups would be great if you could actually get out in the high moment, but we know that's not always the case. So we've been able to avoid some of those roller coaster rides and just really invest into what we think are the strong teams in the industry who are going about execution in a way that's really for the long term. But what's really interesting is I feel like at this particular moment in cannabis, we've seen a drawdown in the capital in the public markets around the cannabis names while these businesses are building since February 2021. It really started at that moment. And then there was some externalities like the Archegos event caused some of the custody to leave the space and some of the risk off sentiment to shift out of the space. And so we've seen capital just continue to kind of retreat from cannabis because it's a difficult industry to invest in. And yet I couldn't have stronger conviction in the companies and in what I see setting up to be a very interesting kind of political situation. So the way Morgan, my business partner and my brother and I talk about it is it's the great reset. And we feel like you have greater visibility into the, what this market could look like. You have greater understanding and visibility on the quality of the teams. The teams have done great work to set themselves up for uplisting opportunities when the exchanges open up to the U.S. operators. And I'm just really excited. I've just invested further into our own vehicles because I think this is a great reset. And I don't know how many times you get to enter in at these levels. So Emily just gave us a look kind of what it looks like to be an investor looking inside. Brady, your story, among other stories, is well known that you were able to build One Plant Bluma 
over a very short period of time and turn around and sell this over a year ago for over $200 million to Cresco Labs. But being an operator, what Emily just described firsthand, literally sharpening pencils, selling pencils, whatever he he had to do to make ends meet. Maybe just tell that story for people that don't understand. I'm going to get in also now to, after you talk about this, why it's so hard technically to do business in the space and how incredible it is that companies even now are able to pull off what they can with all the laws and rules that are out there for them. Yeah. From an operating standpoint, it's truly a life on the frontier. It's like the Oregon Trail. It's really hard. You're clipping along in your wagon and all of a sudden the Indians attack you and you're like, ah, whatever, we'll get past that. Maybe we lost one or two people. And then you hit the Rocky Mountains and you're like, okay, how are we getting around this? And then it starts snowing and then your wheel breaks. So it's basically a game of resilience. I'm not complaining because there's a lot of black market operators that have been doing this for a long time in the shadows that I think would kill for the opportunity to do it in the legal market where they could actually be profitable. So I'm not complaining. But it's a hard business. This is not for the faint of heart. And I think you've seen a lot of operators come over from CPG or alcohol or tobacco and be like, oh, this isn't going to be so bad. How hard can it be? And then you look at what Constellation is experiencing with Canopy right now. And I'm thinking they're they're reevaluating some of those decisions, though. I believe that investment was solely based on a beverage development in Canada. But that's a whole other discussion. So it's a very capital intensive business. Because of the Schedule 1 designation, capital is hard to come by, and it's very expensive as compared to our peers. If I was selling beer, my cost of capital would be drastically different in a better way than if I'm selling pre-rolls. So it's an incredibly hard business. Execution is incredibly hard. There's a very specific reason that I haven't joined some of my peers like Ben Cobbler and Boris Jordan and Charlie Batchel and others in chasing down multiple state operations or operations through myriad of states. It's because of the Schedule 1 designation, you have to have individually siloed manufacturing, retail, and operations in each individual state because the product cannot cross state lines. This is not making bourbon on the bourbon trail in Kentucky and shipping it to warehouses around the country. You want to be in 10 states, you have to have operations in 10 states, CapEx in 10 states, OpEx in 10 states. So as we chose to come into Florida, because we believe Florida is one of the most important markets in the country, if you look at it from a total sales in the aggregate. It's always one of the top five. It has been for a period of time. A giant like Truly, kudos to Kim Rivers, 80% of their business is from Florida and they're a market leader. It's a huge state opportunity. And we chose to go deep, not wide into one state when we built Bluma. That's what we're doing again in our next jump into the marketplace. Because of the ability to focus on one state, dial things in, build a brand, and then take it out once we have the opportunity to potentially not have to have that schedule one problem of not being able to cross state lines. That's ultimately the longer term vision, but it's a tough business. I mean, we built out Bluma One Plant. We had a CapEx budget. We had commitments from investors. And then about 60% of it came in because the cannabis markets had one of its, we're going to sell off this month moments. And everybody lost everything and got to be pretty crafty. Getting through payroll is not fun. Getting through health insurance when it's 30 to 40% more expensive. Access to banking. So again, I'm not complaining. It's, it's part of the job. But it's a really hard industry. And when I see, congrats to Burner for making the cover of Forbes, but it's not sitting on the cover of Forbes smoking a joint. This is a hard business. If you go across the California landscape right now, there's a lot of people that have jumped into the legal industry that are going upside down really fast. And it's not just in California. It's You can lose a lot of money. I mean, Danny, we see this in Florida. I know you've been spending more time down here. Bo Wrigley, $800 million into Cetera, vaporized. They're in full-blown litigation. This is a tough industry. You have to be a really good steward of capital. But I think the most important thing and where I'm incredibly humbled 
is you got to have a really good operations and, and management team that understands that you have a finite amount of capital. You have to know who you want to be, which most companies are in a race. So I don't think they've done the work of knowing what they want to be. And one of the things that I've best pieces of advice I've ever got from someone was it's not what you say yes to, it's what you say no to that will define whether you succeed in this industry. And chasing shiny objects is bad. So for us, we have a very defined purpose. We skated through on the Bluma, sometimes clearing payroll by under $1,000, which when you're talking about a $300,000 payroll run, that's quite the moment. But uh, we made it and we're excited to go do it again because like I said earlier, I think I'm a glutton for punishment. But I truly believe in the industry. I believe it's going to be transformative. The alcohol lobby and the alcohol companies are all showing up in mass to, to jump in when they can. And it's just about surviving until that moment happens. So you just brought up a lot of for people out there that don't know, there's 280. You can't deduct certain expenses as a cannabis company. You can't get normal insurance. You can't run payroll because you can't use a bank. You can't. It's a very cash heavy business. There's just not a lot of economies of scale. And Emily, I know you have some private investments that address some of those issues that are trying to build that regardless of what the laws say. They're actually coming up with these types of solutions. Can you talk about maybe some of those, give an example of who actually is taking advantage of these dumb, archaic rules? Yeah, I mean, we do have uh, different platforms that help with QMS systems or compliance tracking. Like we just did a new investment that's a compliance software to help each operator get scaled up in each of these patchwork frameworks that Brady was talking about. But we also have data analytics that we invest into. And that to me is actually one of the most useful platforms when you're trying to look at the total story of the United States and trying to see the different trends in the different markets. And that does really guide our investment. It's, it's an interesting experience when you can invest into something that also helps to inform your investment decisions. And I do like those tech flat platforms that reach across the different markets and create a whole ecosystem for the operators. So there is technology that is improving and trying to support these operations and improve efficiency, visibility and transparency into the business. And also the state regulators really do appreciate that because then they have a better picture of the business. Like today, I was just running around New Jersey, checking out some of these new dispensaries. And this is the kind of thing you have to do if you're an investor in cannabis is get out there into the new markets and see how excited people are to be able to stand in line and order legal cannabis that comes in really cool packaging that has all of this information about what it is that they're actually consuming and that they can take home and share and and have a great experience. And we invested into this platform called Dispense, which is really interesting because the founder was one of the founders of Tablelist, which is a nightlife booking platform. They also created this platform as a, an adjacency into cannabis as something where you're trying to really corral people, move them through doors quickly high volume transactions and just being able to use that platform, hearing people in the store, seeing how excited people were. It's great to see how that digital relationship to the retail experience is really elevating the whole thing. So one of the elephants or the elephants and the donkeys, I would say in the room is the Safe Banking Act. And what's amazing in this is there's been fits and starts now for two years, at least, right? I can remember back maybe three years at this point, Brady. And I know you guys are both involved in various public policies um, having to do with the sector. But the safe banking checks many boxes, and I totally understand how Democrats want there to be expungements. Everyone does. And there needs to be some social causes that are connected to it. I agree. And it seems like we're getting very close. So in the game of boy crying wolf now, for the first time, it's as real as it's ever been. And it seems nobody's paying attention, maybe because there's so much scar tissue, Brady. But a couple minutes maybe on just safe banking, where we are and what you see, because there's been some big pivots. Yeah. I mean, if you look back... 
and I've been a commentator on safe banking. I was in the room when it was teed up to be drafted. I've worked alongside Representative Perlmutter, I've worked alongside, it feels like a lifetime of working alongside this legislative process in D.C., being in the room all the way back to help draft the state's reform act with Cory Gardner. No one fails to recognize, and there's a lot of very impatient people in today's instant gratification world, is that moving legislation and comprehensive reform legislation in our federal government is not turning a speedboat. It's turning an aircraft carrier. It's slow and it takes time and it's frustrating. But if you look across the last, we had a really good opportunity to get safe banking passed last December. And the issue that I started lobbying on cannabis reform is I didn't go to the House Democrats or even the Senate Democrats when we started in 2015. I hired Haley Barber, Republican, who chaired the Republican Governors Association and whose firm is probably one of the top Republican-backed firms. They're bipartisan, but at the time it was, we started this process in late 15, early 16. I went in and started working the Republican Senate because that's where we needed the votes. I didn't think back then I needed House votes. I needed Republican votes. So we began the process and it was a cold winter. Nobody wanted to talk to us. Been thrown out of McConnell's office twice for talking about cannabis. When we went in there and set a meeting for hemp, immediately pivoted to medical cannabis and we were shown the door. The badge of honor, by the way. So the Democrats last December, much to my chagrin, spiked safe banking out of the NDAA. Not only did they spike it like I called they would have to, they did it publicly and owned it. And I think that was a decision that they gravely regretted over the next three to four months because they took a lot more backlash than they thought. The voters have spoken. You look at the national polling, 90-something percent favor full adult use legalization federally and in their respective states. People between the ages of 21 and 40, 67% prefer cannabis to alcohol. Alcohol sales tax are being eclipsed by cannabis sales taxes in states where it's a recreational legal. The signs are all around us. And it wasn't until recently, and I was laughing with my team at VGR going, if you would have told me when we started this process in 2015 that the Safe Banking Act would be killed by Democrat Senate majority leaders, not Republican Senate majority leaders, I would have told you you're smoking really bad weed. And that's what happened. But I think it was honestly it's something that needed to happen, as painful as it was, because they felt the backlash. To everyone's credit out there and to the constituency's credit, to all the advocacy groups, National Cannabis Roundtable, a myriad of them, everyone spoke up. Amber Littlejohn and everyone lost their minds. And somebody that's near and dear to my heart, Weldon Angeles, who's been a freedom fighter for us, and I'm proud to sit on his board and help get his message out. All of those moments needed to happen. And if you look at this year, we've had over seven or eight cannabis-related bills introduced in the legislature, in the federal legislature, just this year. It feels like in the last 45 days, it has been an absolute flurry of activity as we sled towards the midterms and the messaging starts. The proudest thing for me is cannabis is no longer a tertiary West Coast legislative issue. It is a front and center, tier one, top of the envelope issue. It's being talked about by leadership. It's even being talked about Republicans. We have over the 10 votes we need for Safe Banking Act. And just recently, Cory Gardner, who was a blocker, just signaled in at least a flurry of interviews, I feel like over the last five days, that he's looking to make a deal with Safe Banking Act. And I admire him for holding resolute on getting some level of social reform and social justice before banking passes. But I think the message that they received is one that I actually talked about on this podcast, Danny, the first time you ever had me on it in March of 2021 with you and Guy was empowering small business owners and minority business owners in this space to have access to banking and financial services is a social justice win because they can't enter the space otherwise. 
The big five MSOs, they have bank accounts. They're all good. Okay, they have the complex structures necessary to access capital and to do it. The small dispensary owner, if you look at like the state of New York, I thought it was an amazing moment that they said the first 100 dispensary licenses in the adult use program are going to go to minorities that have been convicted of a cannabis-related offense. That's amazing. The second bullet point that didn't make the news is you had to have two years of audited tax returns to show you could run a business successfully. I don't know a single trapper on the street operating out of their trunk that has a tax return. So it's not having access to those types of financial services and banking is going to make it incredibly hard. And Emily probably knows this better than anybody. If you look at some of the social equity licensing that happened out in California, it was the best of intentions, but terrible results. Oakland, most of them have no access to capital. Los Angeles, when they did theirs, most of them have no access to capital. So we've seen a real defined, I call it a pivot on Twitter, where Dem leadership is now recognizing, and make no mistake about it, President Biden or Merrick Garland could stroke with a stroke of their pen, an executive order could address a huge chunk of the social justice reforms. And I think that's what you're going to see happen in this absolutely tragic verdict that came down today with Brittany Griner as just serendipitous. I hate to say anything about someone getting sentenced to nine years in prison is, but that is going to be remembered, I think, in the cannabis movement as something that triggered some real legislative and executive action for someone that's basically now being treated as a war prisoner because they were an American playing basketball and they had something in their bag. Now they're nine years in prison. It's elevated the issue to where some major folks in the world are tweeting about it on a regular basis. So, and, and the president is committed to getting her out. Well, I appreciate the president doing that. Let's deal with the people here in America because there's a lot of people in America here with scarlet letters. So you're seeing all this come together. I look at signs, not signals. I truly believe Boy Who Cried Wolf disclaimer, we see safe banking either before the midterms in the NDAA or in the omnibus approach, which has been echoed by Earl Perlmutter, Cory Booker, and from what I'm told, even Democratic uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are all seeing what they can get included in the bill. Well, I'm a Brady Cop 2024 guy at this point. So either of you, actually, I'm an Emily fan or Brady fan. Emily, so I know you, you probably agree with all of that, I would assume. You're also involved in the Marijuana Policy Project. I believe, and talk about what you do there and then maybe add on thoughts. Because before we got on air today, we were talking about Brittany Griner and how tragic it is and what that means. Oh, God. Yeah. I That one. Oof. I was on the board of the Marijuana Policy Project for a few years, and it was during a really pivotal time when I think we had seven of the eight states legalize adult use programs in that election. It was the year that President Trump was elected. And it was a really interesting time because you could see that was a really massive landmark shift around the United States around how we were going to roll out these programs. And what was important during the time of the Marijuana Policy Project is, and I chose to participate in that, is that, yeah, we are participants in industry organizations that support the business case of cannabis. Marijuana Policy Project was really about decriminalizing cannabis and making sure that people were no longer going to prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses. And they were taking a state-to-state approach as well as a federal approach. So I learned a lot in my time at the Marijuana Policy Project. I mean, as anyone can hear, Brady is like a fish to water with politics. I had to come to learn to embrace it as an aspect of being a cannabis investor. And I do feel like it has given us an edge to be so heavily involved politically. And it's something we've really leaned in on. It does become very fascinating. And one of the things, to Brady's exact point about where we are right now with the Safe Plus potentially, is 
I saw the CAOA. I listened to the hearing or the witness statements and to the responses from the senators around it. I was baffled by a lot of the outdated and frankly incorrect stigma associated with legalizing cannabis. And I was glad that there were factual points made to counteract that because I just always worry when these old reefer madness tropes get back out there again and if they get any oxygen. But one of the things I had learned during my time on the board of the Marijuana Policy Project is you're trying to swing the pendulum further and further and just hope it doesn't swing as far back behind you. And that's what it feels like they're doing. That feels like it was a Hail Mary, pushing the door wide open and hoping to slide in through the the crack on maybe a more moderate piece of legislation. But I couldn't agree more about the banking and absolutely with the funding of small businesses. You know, I've often said I associate this with Cannabis reminds me a little bit of coffee, just like it could of wine and spirits or beer. I'm hoping this industry doesn't become just Folgers and Maxwell House, and we just have two cannabis brands. Because then we had to work all the way back, and now we have all these amazing craft coffee brands that have been very successful businesses. And I'm just hoping we can maintain more differentiation across the entire spectrum of what's offered in the cannabis industry, just because it would be, frankly, more interesting. And I think it's more interesting from a financial perspective to have that level of diversity, but it's also the right thing to do. And without any banking reform, to Brady's point, the MSOs are all fine banked. They have access to decent lending capacity in terms of their cost of capital. But where it really comes in is there's no like micro lending programs for smaller businesses, which would be a perfect pairing with these social equity programs is to have micro loans that are associated with that. I know New York is trying to establish a fund around it, but I just think there could be so much more done if safe banking passes. So I was a 0% chance person on 2022, but now I'm looking towards positive. You just brought up brands. And I know that's a thing near and dear to both of your hearts. And even with all the stuff happening that makes it very difficult for a lot of these companies to operate, there are brands being built right now. And I think for people out there that don't know, you can't advertise across any FCC regulated channel about cannabis. So this is all organic type stuff that's happening and brands are starting to matter and will matter. I think you both believe that. Brady, first two, we don't have to go into what brand I know that you're starting to build now that you that you see happening. But we are at the point now, and I'll fast forward and come back to you here, where you guys both believe that it's CBG companies are the barbarians at the gate. Alcohol is going to come in. Tobacco is going to come. They're just waiting for any law to change because they're seeing exactly what's happening to the consumer in their sector, market share leaving. So talk about how brands play a role in that, Brady. And I'm going to ask Emily. I want the same question to you. Emily, you mentioned coffee. And as we've been building, we built our last brand. And as we're building our next brand, one of the companies we studied intensely was Starbucks. Because when Starbucks entered the marketplace, there was only one way to get coffee. You either bought Folgers Crystals and it was crappy out of your home coffee maker, or you bought gas station coffee or McDonald's coffee for 99 cents. And Starbucks came in with an artisanal idea and made it all about the consumer experience in the store with the barista. They made it, introduced an entirely new lexicon that no one had heard before, Grande, Americanos, lot And they guess what they did for the first 20 something years of their business, they sold an artisanal coffee for three to four bucks and blew everybody else out of the water. Like you, that's exactly what we're trying to do on the premium side of cannabis. And I think one of the things I think from a branding standpoint, that's so integral that I think so many companies are getting wrong from my personal opinion is cannabis has been an established industry in the shadows, albeit, but an established industry for the better part of the last 65 to 70 years. It has been making concerts better. It has been making your in-laws tolerable around the holidays. It has been making a long day at work 
better. It has its own music. It has its own holidays. It has its own vocabulary. It has its own movies. And it's something that people have identified with. I mean, if you think Woodstock, you think people rolling joints running around. I mean, they're doing other stuff too. Let's not kid ourselves. You wish I was there. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. And so many cannabis companies today are running away from that culture and away from that authenticity. And they're trying to make it into a pharmaceutical wellness play. Cannabis has amazing wellness capabilities. Emily saw it with her father. I saw it with my father when he was dying. It was one of the things that pushed me over the edge to go chase my dream. But at the end of the day, people are looking to replace alcohol for a relaxing feeling for the most part. People are looking to, and I don't think you're ever going to see a physician write a prescription to go smoke something. Unfiltered, by the way, for the most part. To me, I think it needs to be a more authentic, honest approach. And I think brands will be built around that. And I think what you're going to see in this sector is there's going to be the medical play and the pharma play that I think is the most saturated part of the market right now, without question. And then I think you're going to see from a quality standpoint, the opportunity for artisanal regional brands. I think you have to study where we are as a country in the CPG world right now. National brands are no longer how things are done. Kroger may own grocery stores, but each individual region there they operate has a different store that's unique and favored by that region. Across the board, you can take that with restaurants. You can take that with coffee shops. There's a hyper local and there's a push towards regionality. And that's what I think you're going to start to see emerge in cannabis as well, because guess what? They're not waiting. Alcohol is already making bets. They're coming into the sector. They're all distributing. The biggest alcohol distributors are all distributing CBD in the U.S. and cannabis in Canada to learn the market. Beverage company like Constellation Brands, first one over the wall, $4 billion into canopy growth. That wasn't so they could sell joints out of pharmacies in Canada. That's because they're up there developing a beverage. I can tell you on the lobbying side, they are all lining up. So ultimately, brands will matter. I think it's a huge deal. I don't think any real brand has been created in cannabis yet, not a lasting brand. I think there's still an opportunity to do it at a regional basis and somebody could scale up. But let's just talk about this for a second and then I'll be quiet. I think it's amazing to note that look at it from a share of wallet or a share of stomach standpoint against alcohol. Let's just talk purely about alcohol for a second. If a consumer had 20 bucks in their pocket and they're going out on a Friday night to go out and they go buy $10 worth of edibles at a dispensary and they take that edible and because they take that edible, this is a personal case study, by the way, they only have two beers instead of five beers. They now just took a significant amount of money out of the alcohol's potential purchasing power to be spent in revenue for the alcohol company. That's a big hit that they can't ignore. Sheriff's stomach if you take that edible or you smoke a joint or hit a vape pen before you go out and you only have two beers instead of five beers or six beers and you get up the next day and you feel like a million bucks because you're not hung over and you had a great night's sleep, guess what? That becomes the new normal. And that's what you're seeing in a lot of the data. And I know I'm a big fan of headset, which I know Emily's involved with as well. Cyan, I'm a huge fan of data. We're data geeks. My whole team are data geeks. If you study the data, the trends will show you that the fastest growing category right now is edibles. And more importantly, because it's ease of use. And secondarily, people are figuring out that if they take an edible and go out, they're going to get up feeling really good without a hangover. That's going to become the new normal. And alcohol cannot let that happen. I think the barbarians at the gate thing, I think it's flipped around. The cannabis industry, even though we don't have access to the same capital and, and, and playing field, we are the disruptor. And ultimately, those that can make it and survive are going to completely disrupt. I think it's alcohol and tobacco first. I think pharma's further down the road. That's just me. But on the branding piece, brands absolutely will matter. And the only way, in my opinion, you can have a brand is you got to be really authentic. Emily, I heard you talk about Wonder. I know you, you see it more on the West Coast, obviously, than I would. But that's a perfect example, right, of what you think is starting to take mind share and market share from people, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the can of curists who are now getting into the industry are really curious about this beverage category because it's a form factor they're familiar with. And it's something that's been so well socialized in our society. And frankly, the new wonder and some of and can and these new beverage products have a much more predictable onset and offset that is more akin to an alcoholic, like one glass of wine or a beer, instead of having some of the effects of some of the edible products where if it's a heavy dose, you can have quite a surprise. So I'm very in favor of these, what they're calling sessions style beverages. In fact, I took the red eye to New York last night. And instead of having alcohol before flying, I had a sessions wonder drink. And it was a really pleasant experience. And by the way, I wasn't dehydrated on the flight, slept really well, had a great experience. So I think one of the things that's so awesome about cannabis as an opportunity from a branding standpoint is Cannabis has kind of lived in a silo just because of the regulatory status of it. But cannabis integrates very well into so many aspects of our lives and also augments it purely on a lifestyle side, like to Brady's point about music and to movies, everything, anything you can experience can be augmented by cannabis. And I think Carl Sagan was one of the great proponents of this. But where I'm going with that is that brand building where you can tie experience to it is one of the stickiest and most resonant ways to build brands. And by the way, millennials are the experienced generation. That's one of our great spending groups from a cohort in the cannabis industry. But what I'm excited about too is generation Gen Z, because to me, they are going to be the cannabis native generation where their share of wallet as they enter the workforce and grow their personal wealth, they will have a dedicated allocation to cannabis as a part of their spending pattern, not just alcohol, not whatever else they might be doing, but it's just a part of their universe being substantially more legal than it was for any generation before them. I would say that both of you have great brands. People should be paying attention to what you two are saying. Pioneers in the space continue to be advocates, success stories, investors, operators. I think people can learn a lot from playing the long game here, as opposed to, Brady, your point earlier about immediate gratification and trying to get it. Things are happening behind the scenes regardless of the laws that are getting passed, and we are well on our way. And yes, we're still in the early innings, but we've already seen so much success happen. So I want to thank both of you for coming on the tape here. And I know we're going to have you back on again. And it feels like this is going to be over the next two to three, four quarters, we're going to see a real sea change, I think, politically. And I think we're starting to see culturally a change where we just talked about where people will start to notice more brands that are out there. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.